Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Marissa Charles and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Marissa Charles. Well, thank you very much for joining us right here on WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles. Dr. Charles is board certified in family practice and is an osteopathic doctor who uh, has been with us now almost two years as our co-host here on WellMed Radio. And in that time, uh, Dr. Charles, we've covered an enormous number of topics, but one that we're bringing up today probably doesn't get enough coverage, and that's advanced care planning. You're right. And advanced care planning is something that we really need to discuss with all our patients um, and, you know, for all our listeners as well. Uh, it's something that you need to think about and make sure that you have advanced care planning in place. Well, we're in luck because we have an expert joining us. Uh, Dr. Lee Fredholm is a physician at the Wellman Supportive and Palliative Care Clinic in Austin, Texas, earned her medical degree at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, Missouri, Completed her residency at Dell Medical School in Austin. Dr. Fredholm is board certified in family medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. And Dr. Fredholm, it's a delight to have you on. Thanks for joining us on WellMed Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, as a board certified practitioner in both hospice and palliative care, uh, that brings up a question that a whole lot of folks have because they confuse hospice and palliative care. They're not the same. They are not the same. That is an excellent point. Hospice is a, a system of care that is designed to take care of people in the last six months of life, as best we can tell when that is, which is can be difficult. And palliative care is a discipline that is uh, built around the care of patients with serious illness prior to that last six months. So on average, an American who doesn't have a sudden death which would be 90% of us are not going to have a sudden death, we'll spend about the last 10% of our life with some kind of chronic serious illness. So if you're 90 and you get six months of hospice, that means you have eight and a half years of time where you're not eligible for hospice, but you probably need more support than the traditional medical system can provide. I remember a call I got. And that's from where my, we step in. My brother Jimmy called me, this is several years ago now, and, and said, I've got... Good news and bad news about mom. The good news is she's doing really well. The bad news is hospice fired her. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so they were right. able to give her an extension, and, and ultimately she did pass away very peacefully. Uh, her parts just wore out. But uh, that was a call that I, I guess drove home the point. Uh, six months is six months. Well, it, within the hospice framework, um, it's not that you have to pass within that six-month period, but you have to have two doctors who think it is reasonable to expect that their patient will pass within the next six months from the time that the question is being asked. So when we refer patients to hospice, we are using our best clinical judgment with the information we have at that time. And sometimes the support that hospice provides and the interdisciplinary team actually helps people improve, and then they become ineligible for hospice. So it is expected to have about 10% of folks who sign on to hospice ultimately uh, improve and, and be able to leave hospice. 
the bigger problem that we have is not that patients are being admitted too early. It's that, that they're being admitted too late. So um, for a variety of reasons, uh, most people get far less than six months, um, roughly half less than a month. Play armchair psychologist, I think, you know, a whole lot of families, uh, they're in denial. If they say, yes, we'll go into hospice, it's acknowledging that the end is here. I think that is a component. There, there are lots of reasons why. Some of it has to do with patients and families. Some of it has to do with physicians, frankly. And, um, and, and it's, for me at least, what I struggle with is I know how complete the services that hospice provides. And so for my patients who are eligible for hospice, even my team doing their best is a poor substitute for hospice. So we do encourage folks to sign up for hospice as soon as they're eligible. It just reorients the entire system of care around the patient's comfort and staying at home. And there's no other place, even with well-intentioned providers, that you can get that. I want to find out from you in just a minute what attracted you to this end of your practice. Before we do that, let me remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles, and we're talking on our WellMed Radio hotline from Austin, Texas, with Dr. Lee Fredholm, who is a WellMed physician in WellMed supportive and palliative care. And Dr. Fredholm, what attracted you to hospice and uh, palliative care? So that's a great question. Um, when I was in my training, so late 80s, middle to late 80s and early 90s was uh, when the AIDS epidemic was really at its peak, but before we had medicines and treatments to help those patients live longer. So I really got a lot of experience in training, taking care of patients who were, who were critically ill, terminally ill. And then post-training, I opened up hung up my shingle and opened up a small town family medicine practice in a small town and the people who showed up were sick. So I'm not sure whether I chose it or it chose me, but over time, uh, my practice really just became the care of folks with serious illness. And that was before we even had a discipline of palliative medicine. It didn't get official naming and recognition until 2008, but I started working with hospice in 1994 because I had a lot of patients who needed hospice. And I, I, I found myself on the phone with hospice nurses a lot and really appreciated the depth and breadth of services that were available to my patients when they were in hospice. Now, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is advanced care planning. And, and that, again, is something that not enough people pay attention to until it's probably too late. So talk to us about advanced care planning. What is it? How do you do it? What are you looking for? And what kind of help can you get in structuring a plan? Sure. So advanced care planning in general, it, those are medical decisions that we would make in advance, taking into account our own values and preferences, and then combining that with our own uh, individual profile with respect to illness. There really are two tracks. Uh, if you have a serious illness and you are thinking about your medical decisions, that really is a conversation that should happen between you and your physician. We can talk in generalities about what kind of things to think about, but for the general public, what I would focus on is thinking ahead about what you would want in the case of a catastrophic illness, such as a car accident that renders you unconscious or a stroke that renders you unable to make your own decisions. And who would you want to make those decisions for you? And then 
we'll talk in a minute about the conversation that you need to have because just making the decision of who you want to make the decision is that's job number one, but there are right. about three other things that come after that. Uh, well, talk to me about uh, what the options are. Uh, I, I filled out uh, all the forms and made uh, decisions. My wife is designated as uh, responsible for my advanced care planning. Uh, and I've got a medical power of attorney that I, I completed. And some of the choices, uh, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, I guess, are ones that if you're unconscious, you don't get to second guess. So you got to be pretty careful in picking them. Correct. So as long as you are able to speak to your medical professionals, they are always going to be asking you what your goals and preferences are for your care. So none of these documents replace your own participation in your medical care. And that is a fear that some people have if they sign a medical power of attorney, for example, that a family member would take over medical decisions. But I want to be clear that none of these documents have any power whatsoever unless or until our patient is not able to tell us what they want. In the state of Texas, I cannot speak completely to Florida, but the Florida documents are similar. We have several advanced directive documents. So I think about advanced care planning as a process and the process might end in making one of the documents and it might not depending on your individual situation. But the documents are directive to physician or other healthcare uh, providers. And that is commonly called the living will. Another directive is the medical power of attorney. And then a third is called an out of hospital do not resuscitate order. So the living will was very popular uh, in the 1980s and 90s. And it is better than nothing, but it is not particularly helpful when, when you have a catastrophic illness. So the living will sets out, each individual decides, if I have an irreversible condition, that's a condition that with proper medical care will lead to death, but takes longer than six months, or a terminal condition, that's a condition that with proper medical care will lead to death in less than six months, as best we can tell. Um, then the individual filling out the form decides, I want everything done possible to keep me alive as long as possible, or I wish to die comfortably. The problem with that document in terms of how it's implemented is that as I referenced before, for our 90 year old patient with an irreversible illness for nine years, choosing to have comfort care nine years before your death is probably not aligned with most people's preferences. So, so it's a binary choice um, in a non-binary world in 2022. Tell me what that so, means. Well, you so in that document, you're choosing give me everything or or make me comfortable. And for a lot of my patients, uh, depending on what's happening and and what their function level is and how much they're able to enjoy their life, at the beginning of a nine-year illness, they might say, yeah, I want everything. But maybe at year six, they say, well, I want you to treat things that are reversible. If I have an infection, give me antibiotics. If I need IV fluids, that's great. But I really don't want to go to the ICU anymore. And I really uh, would prefer to stay home if I have to, but I'm okay with being hospitalized. Maybe by uh, year seven or eight, they say, well, I really don't want to go to the hospital anymore, but I would still want to take antibiotics by mouth. I still want to continue my medicines for my chronic medical problems. So, 
So there's a there's a, a, a spectrum of choices that are available over the course of a serious illness that are not well represented in that document. I can tell you an interesting true story. Uh, a gentleman who used to work with my wife uh, suffered a severe cardiac issue at cardiac arrest. Uh, he was resuscitated, brought back, taken to the hospital. Uh, and his daughter living in another state uh, said, he, he's got a DNR, uh, go find it, it's in his house. And mm -hmm. so I went to his house to find it, couldn't find it, uh, came back to the hospital. Uh, it turns out he recovered and he said, wow, I'm glad you didn't find that DNR because I think they shocked him several times to bring him back. And of course, they wouldn't have done that had I found the DNR. Uh, so hindsight being 2020, right? Right. So it's important to consider these options in, in context. So for a community dwelling senior who's doing well, um, CPR is not an unreasonable thing to do in the event of an MI or a heart attack rather. Right. Um, for someone with terminal cancer who's in the last few months of their lives, CPR is not going to make a difference in their long-term survival. So really, this is a really good uh, way of pointing out that these are great questions to discuss with your personal physician who knows your history, knows your your individual situation, and can help you guide you into the choices that you wish to make. We're going to come right back to you. Don't go anywhere. Uh, if you're listening right now, you're listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles, and we're talking on our WellMed Radio hotline with Dr. Lee Fredholm. She's a WellMed supportive and palliative care specialist in Austin, Texas. This is WellMed Radio. Just imagine, imagine finding a doctor who listens. Imagine a doctor who cares, who takes the time to understand you and your lifestyle better. Imagine an entire care team dedicated to helping you live your best life. Well, you don't have to imagine. WellMed is redefining aging with our unique approach to care, designed by physicians to help you stay as healthy as possible. Learn more about our recognized model of care at discoverwellmed.com. Well, we are so pleased you are sticking with us right here on Wellmed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles, and we're talking from the Austin, Texas community with Dr. Lee Fredholm. She's the Wellmed Supportive and Palliative Care Specialist in Austin, and we're talking about advanced care planning. And, and Doctor, you mentioned uh, off the air, uh, NPOA is something we should talk about. What is that? Yes, what I'd like to focus on today is the MPOA or medical power of attorney. In some states, it is called the durable power of attorney. The first thing to know is some folks get confused about this. It is not a financial power of attorney. So having a medical power of attorney only means that you have chosen a surrogate to make or to make decisions on your behalf if and only if you are unable to make them for yourself. And those decisions are only about medical treatment, not about your bank accounts or your finances or your bills. So in my career, prior to joining WellMed, I oversaw a hospital-based palliative care program for about 12 years. And a big part of my job was sitting in ICUs with families who were trying to figure out what to do after a catastrophic illness or as I mentioned before, a car accident or a trauma or a catastrophic event. And, and desperately wanting to make the right decision and to honor the wishes and preferences of the person that they love, 
and having no idea what that person's wishes are, were. And so it's really important for all adults to have a medical power of attorney. So there's, there are a few things you have to think about when you're talking about a medical power of attorney. It's really important that you choose a person who's able to handle that. The, the burden of decision-making in catastrophic situations is very heavy. And for a lot of folks, it feels like making the decision that's allowing the person you love desperately to die. And um, not everybody can handle that. So it needs to be somebody who can handle it. It needs to be somebody who can honor your wishes and preferences. So if you have a family member who you know you disagree with about the decisions, the preferences that you have don't align with that person, uh, probably don't want to choose them because it's going to be hard for them to go against their own wishes and preferences to honor yours. It's really important to choose someone who's going to be available. So I have spent time trying to find people who were deployed on the other side of the world, who were incarcerated, who were, we couldn't find them. So somebody who can be contacted and is willing. And then there are some other considerations to think about. For myself, I, I have three children and um, some days I think it's hard to get them to agree on the color of the sky. Right. So if you know that your children are gonna have a hard time agreeing you might want to choose somebody who's not one of your children, for example. Um, so thinking about who, who can stand up for you, because that person's job, if we have to call them, is not to tell us what they want. It's to tell us what you want. And that brings me to the really important thing is if you choose someone to be your surrogate, you need to have a conversation with them, at least one conversation, preferably multiple conversations, so that they have the knowledge and information they need to carry out their duties if they're ever called upon. They need to know what you would choose. Were you competent to make that choice? Correct. And in the case of someone who has that responsibility and then family members who disagree, uh, how do you balance that? Well, legally. And I'm sure you see that. I, yes, I see that all the time. <laughs> um, legally, the person who is named in the document at the surrogate has the authority to represent the patient and make the medical decisions. Within families, that can be rocky. So one of the things that some of my patients have done is when they've called, when they've decided who they want to name as their surrogate and had a conversation with that person, then they've had a conversation with their family to say, okay, this is what's happening. I've named my friend as surrogate because I don't want that burden to be on you all. And I know that you will support her in upholding my wishes. Um, with her fingers you know, the crossed reason behind her back. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason families have conflict when someone is dying is because um, it, that there are very few things more stressful than someone that you love dying or having a high risk of dying. And so it's it's human for us to say, well, that's not what I want. Right. I, none of us would ever say goodbye to our loved ones if, if it were up to us what we want. But ultimately, it's what the patient wants. And so you know, we just have to help reframe that this is hard. We wish it was different, but these are your mom's or your dad's or your uncle's wishes. And, and it is our duty to uphold them. You end up in, in that situation, Dr. Fredholm, being a mediator, uh, trying to balance the various interests, even though legally, uh, Mr. And Ms. X can make that decision. Uh, but you know, the family feels very strongly one way or the other. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So sometimes families need a little bit more time. You know, ultimately, we want that family to be able to gather at the Thanksgiving table or the holiday table in the future and be at peace. And so within uh, within reason, we would like for everybody to be comfortable. Sometimes that can't happen. And so if we have to choose between honoring the patient's wishes and having the family be comfortable, then we will choose to honor the patient's wishes. And what are the kinds of choices uh, both Dr. Charles and, and Dr. Fredholm were talking about that you have to spell out in those documents? Uh, force feeding, uh, resuscitation, uh, CPR. What are the issues involved uh, that, that you have to say, I want this, I don't want that? So the medical power of attorney document does not does not force any of those decisions. And um, I actually think that's a good thing because we don't know what the circumstances are going to be under which that decision maker is going to be activated. And just like we talked about before, the spectrum of illness, um, whether or not someone would choose to be resuscitated or choose to have antibiotics or choose to be in the ICU is going to depend very much on the circumstances of that individual situation. So what I think is more helpful is I ask my patients to think about and communicate with their family about what living well means to them. And the question really at the bedside is, will the things that are available, the interventions that are available from medicine have a reasonable chance of returning our patient to what the patient would consider to be living well? And if the answer is no, then it's never easy to lose someone you love, but at least we have some guardrails that our patient has given us about, this is what I want, this is what I don't want, and we're not, um, we're not accidentally or inadvertently consigning them to an, an existence that they would not want. Dr. Charles, you face this all the time as well. I do. Um, well, of course, with WellMed, the, we have the vast majority of our patients being, you know, seniors, Medicare-aged folks. Um, so these are things that we try to bring up, you know, at least once a year at our at our annual visit um, to make sure that they have thought about um, the annual, I mean, the um, medical power of attorney um, document to make sure that they have at least thought about it. And sometimes they can choose. Sometimes it's it's you know no question, they're able to pick the person that they know is going to help them the most. Um, but sometimes it's a difficult decision. And so we talk about it. Um, they, we have the forms usually available in the office. Um, if we can get them to, to fill it out, we do. But if they're um, not sure of who they're going to pick and want to go and have those conversations with the family members, then you know we give them the forms, we explain how it, to, how it could be best filled out, and then they bring them back at a later date. Um, and so we just, we like to try to keep that as a, an open subject that we can go back to and talk about um, if needs be. Dr. Now, question, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but before we run out of time, Dr. Fred Holman, Dr. Charles, in the ideal world, that patient who comes in from a car wreck or uh, perhaps cardiac arrest has that document stapled to your chest, to their chest, so, so you have it. In the real world, how do you know? Who has that document? Where is it? Where should you keep it? So there's not a great answer to that question. I want to interject one thing before we move on to that question. And that is that remember that your personal physician or your personal provider is a great person to bring in the person you've chosen as surrogate and have a conversation together. Sometimes lay people 
um, don't have enough experience within uh, medicine to kind of know how to guide the conversation or just need help. And we can help you with that. Back to how to find the documents. There is a state by state difference in where documents are stored. Some states do have registries where you can put your document on file. Texas is not one of them. I don't believe Florida is either. So uh, the best advice that I have, I tell patients that I want you to have the original. I want the person that you choose to be your surrogate to have a copy as well as anyone else who's a alternate. Only one person can be surrogate at a time. But if the surrogate and the patient are in an accident together, for example, the surrogate may not be available. You move on to the alternate. Um, As well, your personal physician and any specialist that you see regularly should have a copy because when it is a catastrophe and you need these documents, they are very difficult to find. If there's a paper stack sitting somewhere at home, uh, that can be impossible to deal with in the middle of a catastrophe. So that was me going back to that example, ruffling through right. that fella's paperwork at home. I never found it. Right. So uh, the physicians should have them on file. If you take it with you, if you are going to the hospital, take a copy with you and then it can be on file at the hospital as well. Good advice. And we are flat out of time. So it's a great way for us to say thank you. I'd like to get you back at some point. Uh, These are discussions that we need to have ongoing. And we thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Lee Fredholm, WellMed Supportive and Palliative Care in Austin. On behalf of Dr. Marisa Charles, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us on WellMed Radio. Executive producers for WellMed Radio are Dan Calderon and Leah Madrano. Our producer is Isaac Wilker, and associate producers are Natalie Ibera and Maurice Hudson. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.